Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and read it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected, subjected to him. So as Christians, <clears throat> it can be very difficult when suffering through life's various trials. Maybe you are a wife with children trying to raise them up in the Lord while living with an unbelieving husband. Maybe that's your situation. Maybe you're struggling at your job to remain faithful to God and trying to keep your job to, pro to provide for your family. Yet there's so much temptation to be disobedient to the Lord. Maybe you're being outcasted by your own family who find you strange because you want to walk in holiness. And I'm sure there's many other trials that we face but this is, but, but when it comes to trials, this wasn't foreign to uh, the church that Peter was talking to. Suffering for righteousness' sake is basically the theme of First uh, Peter chapter 3. And last week, Desmond took us through uh, verses 13 through 17, which dealt with this whole topic of suffering for righteous sake, righteousness' sake. But today, we're going to look through verses 18, 18 through 19, which I just read. And in these verses, you'll, uh, you'll see this continuing theme of suffering for righteousness' sake. But now, specifically, as we get into these verses, it talks about it in, in connection to Christ's sufferings and the victory that we have in Christ through his resurrection. So I broke it down into three points, as I usually do, and you'll see it on your handout. Point number one is... Christ's death and resurrection. Point number two is being brought safely through the water. And point number three is victory in the ascension of Christ. So I'll start with the first point. Uh, and the first point, uh, I base it off of the first verse, which is verse uh, 18. Uh, let's read verse 18. Can someone read that? Thanks. So here, we see that Peter begins a statement with the word for, which means that he's carrying over what he's been saying in the previous verses. And the main idea of what he's been saying is that believers should not fear, even when unbelievers may inflict pain on them. And you'll see that uh, in chapter 3, verse 14. Instead, believers should settle in their hearts that Christ is Lord, 
and be prepared to give answers to those questions about their hope that they have in Christ. You see that in verse 15. And the main reason why Christians ought not to fear is that they will be blessed by God for suffering for his sake. And you get that idea from verses 13 through 14. In other words, the theme, the continuing theme, is uh, that suffering is the pathway to glory. Okay? Now, as we get into verse 18, we see that Peter uses Christ as an example of one who suffers as well. Right? So he's speaking to a people who are suffering, and now he's saying, okay, you're suffering, this is what you ought to do, suffer for righteousness' sake. Um, it makes no sense to suffer when you do bad things, because you deserve the suffering if that's the case. But when you suffer for doing things that are righteous, that's glorious. That's something that God is, is happy about, and he honors that. And then he goes on and he says, okay, now look at Christ. Look at him as an example of suffering. He goes on to say that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So, again, Peter found it necessary to point to Jesus' sufferings as a help to the sufferings of his church. Now, it's important to know that looking to Jesus as merely an example is insufficient for our souls. If he's just an example, that's not good enough for our souls, right? Now, there's no doubt that Jesus is a great example, but what Christ did, specifically speaking about his life, his death, his resurrection, has far more implications than simply to observe and admire him from afar. And uh, and again, I believe this is why Peter made some distinctions. When you read verse 18, there's some distinctions in the way that Jesus suffered. Uh, it, it, it's similar to us as we suffer for righteousness' sake, but there are certain distinctions about Jesus' sufferings that, that are not communicable to us, right? They don't match up to our sufferings. For example, he suffered for sins, right, in which none of us can ever do. We, we, any of our sufferings don't, uh, you know, save or remove sin from another, We also see that Peter describes Jesus' sufferings as the righteous for the unrighteous, which, again, this too we can't do because none of us are righteous in our own merit. So you giving your life for someone else, it may be be for a good cause, you know, living sacrificially, but in no way is it what we see Jesus doing, right? Giving his pure and righteous life over for those who aren't pure. Uh, We're all guilty of sin, and none of us are righteous in our own merit. Jesus was the only righteous, and he gave his life for the unrighteous. Now, as we read on, we see that there there was a goal to his suffering, and his goal was that he may bring us to God. You see that in verse 18. And presently, in Peter's letter, as he was writing, he was speaking to a group of people who were already converted. They were already believers. Some were Jews, some were Gentiles. So what was, what, was the point of Jesus, uh, what was the point of Peter just telling this to his, his audience? If you look at it, he's, he's essentially saying the gospel again. He's saying that the righteous suffered for the unrighteous, and he's using that idea to communicate something to them, and in a, in a sense it's working for their encouragement as they suffer. Uh, But essentially what he's saying is is the gospel. He's reminding his people of the gospel. 
And in light of all of his words of encouragement about persevering and suffering for righteous sake, he found it necessary to share the gospel again to them. And in this verse alone, you'll find a wealth of essential gospel truths. If you look at verse 18, right from the beginning, you see that suffering, or rather death in Christ's case, is the necessary payment for sin. In fact, uh, there are many manuscripts that instead of suffering, they use the word apathenin, which I can't pronounce it right, but uh, it's the word died instead of the word suffering there. So the, even though most, most versions will say suffering, and that's probably the best um, word to be used in that context because it goes with the theme of suffering. But we know that the, the confession that is made there in verse 18 is one that's used often throughout Scripture, which is that Christ died for sin. That's the point when he says Christ suffered, uh, you know, righteous for the unrighteous. But the point is that Christ suffered to the point of death for his people. And this was a common confession of the church uh, and is repeated throughout the New Testament often. And we get this concept right in the beginning of verse 18. Uh, another thing that we can see in verse 18 is the, the key doctrine of penal substitution, which is, which is basically the truth that Jesus' good life was imputed to us while our sins, our bad life, was imputed to him. In other words, we swapped places. That's substitution. And that's seen in there in verse 18. Right? When he says, the righteous for the unrighteous. And finally, we see the goal for Jesus' sacrifice towards the end of that verse, which was to bring us to God. That was the point of his sacrifice. And that alone presupposes that apart from the work of Christ, we have no communion with our Creator. This is very important. Because many assume that they have fellowship with God by virtue of being human without any hindrances, when in fact they fool themselves. If you are new to Christianity, or if you're not a Christian, or you're still thinking about these things, keep in mind that by being human, by being born, by being familiar with things that are related to God or religion, does not mean that you have a relationship with this God. You'd be foolish to fool yourself into thinking that just by you being human, you can just pray and talk to a holy God. Now, fellowship with God existed once, apart from any mediation. But we see that God requires sinlessness, and the first man, Adam, had this fellowship and he lost it when he sinned against God. And this nature carried over to us and we obey its lusts as slaves to sin. Yet Jesus, Jesus Christ was not born of Adam like we were, but rather he came from heaven and in his incarnation he lived a life of obedience that we were called to live, yet we failed. He paid the penalty that we should have faced, and he also rose from the grave so that by faith we could be united to him in his resurrection also. In other words, Jesus, the sinless one, is counted on our behalf. And apart from Jesus, we cannot stand to be in the presence of a holy God, primarily because our sin makes us unworthy. 
However, in him, we're able to come before our God with boldness. If you're in Christ, that veil, that separation has been taken away, has been ripped apart. Now you have access to, to, to the Father through the work of Christ if you're united to him by faith. Here's a verse. Ephesians 3.11 speaks on that. Can someone read that? Amen. So we see here, uh, through Jesus Christ, we're able to approach the Father with confidence and with boldness because there's reconciliation between us and the Father. Our sins have been placed on Christ and he dealt with it. We're, been, we're forgiven and now we can approach God as, as if we were pure and clean and, 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 and carry no guilt because Christ uh, took it on our behalf. Now, going back to the verse, in verse 18, what's the point that Peter's trying to make with all of this, this whole gospel presentation that we find compacted in one verse? What is he trying to communicate to his church? Well, we see that towards the end of the verse, Peter gets to that main point. It says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's what it says there. So, keeping with the theme of suffering, Peter is trying to make the point that suffering comes before glory. The cross is always before the crown. When Peter says, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, he's referring to the sacrificial death that Christ faced in the flesh and the glorious resurrection that followed. And so this is hope to his people because he's speaking to a people who are suffering and being persecuted. And by showing and pointing to Christ in, in, in what he suffered... He's able to encourage them by showing them that the, the, it doesn't finish with their suffering. There's reward, there's glory, there's resurrection. And that's the hope that we have, right? As we live in this earth, as we suffer through many and various trials, our hope that is that at the end, we too will resurrect by, because we're united with Christ. Now... Um, just to backtrack a little bit, many interpreters have misinterpreted that passage when uh, they assume that it describes a resurrection of the spirit without the body, right? If you look at that, it says being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. They assume that what is raised once the body is done and, and, and it dies, what is raised is just the spirit in the resurrection, However, we know that the resurrection of Jesus was not a bodiless spirit, but the resurrection is a resurrection of his actual body. So when it says alive in the spirit, what it means is that the spirit of God is what raised his body from the dead. And again, Peter's point in all of this is to remind the church or, or, or remind the suffering Christians that our suffering will result in a glorious victory in the end, right? God didn't just give us bodies and then you die and then he says, okay, just forget your body and, you know, come, come, come about it um, as if, the, you know, what he created ended up being a failure. No, he will have victory. All that he, he's, he created, he would make new, he would resurrect um, it's not going to waste. Um, God will bring it back up from the grave. 
And this theme of the resurrection is the hope of the Christian, right? That uh, as we suffer, as we suffer, as our bodies waste away, God will come and make it new again. Being united to Christ through faith, we can identify with Christ's sufferings as we suffer, yet we must never lose sight that we are promised a resurrection like his as well. Um, I want to show you a verse, Romans 6, 5. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So that, that, that brings us hope. And for Peter's audience, who have been facing various trials for the cause of Christ, this was a word of hope for them, that they may keep their vision on the resurrection to come. Let's look at uh, point number two. Point number two says, being brought safely through the water. That's point number two. And we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 20. Can someone read those, those verses? Thank you. Bless you. So verse 19, excuse me, verse 19 begins with, in which he went, right? You see that? Verse 19, in which he went. Who is he? It's referring to the spirit in which we see spoken of in the verse prior, right? This is the spirit that we saw resurrect Jesus from the grave. This is a spirit that is in us that promises and will guarantee that we too will raise from the grave. And this is the same spirit being referred to here in verse 19. Holy Spirit. This spirit raised Christ from the dead. This is the Holy Spirit. And it says here in verse 19 and 20 that the spirit went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, I'm sure many questions arise in your head. You know, uh, what are these spirits in prison? Who are these spirits in prison? Uh, what did the spirits proclaim to the spirits in prison? What exactly is Peter talking about here? Uh, there are three major interpretations of that passage, and I'm going to share all three, and then I'll share which one I think is most convincing. But before I do that, uh, I thought it would be worth sharing what Martin Luther says in his commentary on that. And he says, he says this. Look at how helpful this, this, this quote is. He says, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. And I, I go, thanks, Martin Luther. Uh, so helpful, you know. But, yeah, but here are the three major uh, interpretations. Number one, many believe that Jesus descended to hell and preached to the spirits of those who perished in the flood in the time of Noah. Along with this, many would say that what was proclaimed to the dead was the gospel. In other words, Jesus came to, or descended to hell and preached the gospel to those in prison, those in hell. 
giving them a second chance to repent. Now, some would differ slightly by saying that Jesus preached to the righteous dead, freeing them from the prison where they awaited his coming. Others would say Jesus proclaimed condemnation to the unrighteous dead. This view was, uh, actually, this view was held by Origen, which is like an early church father, as well as as many others held to that view. Okay, so that's, that's number one. It's all kind of in the same ballpark. Number two, this is another view, uh, is the Augustinian view. In this view, Augustine held that the spirit that preached to the other spirits in prison was really Christ's spirit through Noah. In other words, when Noah preached, it was essentially a preaching by the spirit of Christ. And his preaching was towards the imprisoned spirits, who in this case would be any person under the snare of sin. All the rebellious people during the time of Noah who didn't want to believe Noah by, you know, coming into the ark. They, they, they thought he was foolish. Those were the imprisoned spirits. Now, during Noah's time, there were many who would reject Noah's proclamation of the coming judgment of the, of the flood. And this is what is meant when Peter says, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Uh, so they did not obey what was preached to them by the Spirit of Christ through Noah. And then the third position or the third interpretation is the idea that the spirits in prison uh, were fallen angels. And the idea is that after Christ's resurrection and after Christ ascended and was seated at the right hand of the Father, Christ confronts all the principalities and powers and he proclaims victory over all the evil spirits. That's, That's another position. Now, even though each of these views can be backed up by Scripture pretty well, I'm mostly convinced by which one? Guess. You said number two? Yes, number two. Is that true? Yes, it is true. Um, Yeah, I'm mostly convinced by the Augustinian view. Uh, But there's some pretty good guys out there that are convinced by number three. I don't know too many that are convinced by number one. Yes. Yeah, number three is uh, the idea that the spirits that are imprisoned, those spirits that are, are, are said there in that verse, those are fallen angels. And so when Jesus ascended, or he resurrected and ascended to, at the right hand of the Father, in some sense, he was proclaiming to the evil spirits out there in the world that he has victory over them, that he, he won through the resurrection. He He beat them, he defeated all the evil spirits by the fact that he resurrected and ascended and now is seated at the right hand and he rules. Um, All authority has been given to him. So that, that, that idea is, in a sense, a proclamation to the spirits in prison, which they would say is evil spirits. Right, demons and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, those are the views. But I'm, I'm convinced by the second one. Uh, which says uh, that uh, the Christ's spirit was, was there as Noah would preach uh, repentance and righteousness to the people, and they rejected him uh, during the time of the flood. 
and, and here's why. I look at 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. I'll put it up there. This, uh, this, is, this makes me think, okay, that makes sense, you know. Uh, it says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, see this, the spirit of Christ in them, right, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So this idea of Christ in them, in other words, the spirit of Christ in them, as they preach, as they proclaim prophecy, it's not a foreign idea. We see that in, in 1 Peter. <clears throat> so it makes sense. <clears throat> so we tie this together, right? What we, we have to ask, what's the point that Peter's trying to make when he brings up this example of the spirits proclaiming during the time of Noah? What's the point? Why is he telling this to a suffering church? I think the answer is seen in verse 20. Uh, going back to our main text, First uh, Peter 3, verse 20, when it says, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, here's the key part right here, were brought safely through the water. That's the key. That's, that's the message that he's trying to bring to suffering Christians. That as God provided a means to uh, protect his chosen people, even though there were eight people, for those in, in Peter's time, the church that he's preaching to, he's giving them a word of encouragement saying that just as God brought them through the waters of the flood, you too will be brought through the waters of the flood in your, through, in your sufferings. That's Peter's point. Those united to Christ are like the eight persons who were brought safely through the water. In this way, is Peter giving assurance to those who are suffering and being persecuted. That even though they suffer now, they will be kept through the waters of judgment. And if you think typologically, right, symbolically, as the ark was refuge to Noah and his family, Jesus Christ is refuge for those who are in him through faith. So the Spirit of God is preaching the same message as he was during the time of Noah. Repent and believe, find refuge in the ark, which in this case is Jesus Christ. Find refuge in him because judgment is coming. Let's look at point number three. <clears throat> point number three is victory in the ascension of Christ. Let's read uh, verses 21 through 22. Can someone read it? Thank you. <clears throat> so in these verses, Peter, he hasn't moved from the typology or the symbolism that he's been using with the events surrounding Noah. He's still on that train of thought. So Peter, when he's writing this passage, with Noah's story in his mind, Peter begins to make connections with Noah's story, 
and the ordinance of baptism. He begins by saying, baptism, which corresponds to this, right? What What is he corresponding to? Right? Baptism relating to what he's been saying, right? About being brought safely through the water, that theme. Baptism has something to do with that. That's what he's saying. Now, before I go on, I know what stands out there when you read that is that part where it says baptism now saves you. And that can be, you look at that and it's, it's like, whoa, <laughs> um, what is it saying? It's confusing, it's controversial. But again, it's important not to simply take that and assume that baptism regenerates the soul of a man. We have to understand it in the context, right? What is he saying in connection to the story of Noah? So first, <clears throat> when you think about the waters of the flood during uh, Noah's time. Keep in mind that it was, it was water that was meant as a judgment from God, right? The water in the flood was a judgment to the people, and it was a judgment from God. Likewise, when you think about the waters of baptism, it also symbolizes the judgment of God in death. So when a person is being baptized, they're being immersed underwater to symbolize death or death of themselves. So keep that in mind. Secondly, the waters of the flood were also the object in which Noah and his family were saved through. Okay? Noah's family were brought safely through the waters in the same way that God brought Israel through the waters of the Red Sea uh, and also through the Jordan. And it's this very thing that Peter has in mind when he speaks about baptism. It corresponds to the security that we have in Christ, who is the antitype or, or the symbol of what we see with the ark, and crossing through the waters of judgment and being kept safe in him. Therefore, <clears throat> it isn't baptism itself that saves, but rather what the baptism signifies. That's, that's what he's saying. He's not speaking on the efficacy of the waters of baptism. He's making a connection with what the waters were in Noah's time and what it symbolizes now. Um, And and in that, he says that it saves. This is why Peter follows up by saying, he, he follows up right away. He goes, he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So, simple terms. He's saying, not in the efficacy of the water, Right? What water does, that's not what we're concerned about. He's saying what we're concerned about is its use as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, I'm going to explain what that means. In other words, baptism is an appeal to God or a symbol or request to God when you, when you act in baptism. And it's, it's a request to God to receive a good conscience to live as a people who are forgiven on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ. So when we go uh, and we uh, are being baptized, we're doing that as a symbol of trust, right? We're saying that, God, we bring this uh, sacrament, this this ordinance before you as a symbol of um, asking you for uh, a clear conscience, which essentially is... uh, forgiveness of sins, and we're doing it uh, in our trust in what Christ did 
and, 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 and his work and his life, his death and his resurrection. We're trusting in what the baptism signifies and not, what the, not the efficacy of the water. And through faith, right, by faith, a believer can always look back to their baptism and be confident on the basis of the work of Christ and him crucified and him resurrected that their appeal to have a good conscience will be answered. So if you've been baptized, you can always, whenever you struggle with doubt or assurance, you can always look at your baptism, right? Because your baptism, when you think back to your baptism, your baptism shows and it proves to you, or it's a good reminder to you, that, that what you're doing there symbolically is on the basis of someone else's work, what someone else did for you. It's not looking back and thinking, man, um, did I live a good enough life? Did I do these works? Baptism essentially means that you're placing your trust in the work of the life, death, and resurrection uh, that was performed in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, you can always look back at your baptism, uh, being confident that your appeal will be answered, and it is answered, on the basis of not you, not what you do, but on the basis of what Jesus did. And in this sense, <clears throat> baptism is a means of grace in which the baptism itself served, in a sense, like a physical preaching to your body. It was the way that your ears hear the preached word. The baptism in the waters of baptism is a preaching to your body. It's a physical form of preaching, assuring you of salvation um, and, and assuring you of the work that Christ did on your behalf. And as you recall that moment, um, you can identify with the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. So when Peter says at the end of verse 21, you'll see that in that same, in verse 21, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When he says that, he's making it very clear that a clear conscience in baptism is the conscience of a forgiven person who has received salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ only and should never be confused with that false view of baptismal regeneration. Paul has, Paul's not even thinking of that, that baptism saves in that sense. You'll notice that his constant point or two is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? And all that entails within that. Baptism symbolizes uh, an appeal to God for a clear conscience. It's a means of grace but it has no power in bringing forth regeneration. <clears throat> and I, I state the same question that I said in all, two, all the two points, or, and, and here in the third point, I, I asked the same question. Why does Peter bring this up? What's the point of, of all this, and how does it relate to the suffering Christians in his time? You can see in verse 22, uh, where, where Peter brings out the point. <clears throat> Jesus came and suffered and then died and he rose victoriously. And in this life, in his life, and in his death and his resurrection, Jesus was a forerunner, right? He was acting on our behalf so that we too can endure suffering and rise again in new life as he promises to bring us safe through the waters. And this is assured because of what we read in verse 22. And this is the point. <clears throat> verse 22 says, 
who has gone, he's talking about Jesus, Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having, having been subjected to him. Why is Peter telling his suffering church about the fact that Jesus is seated high at the right hand of the Father, that he rules, that he has all authority over angels and authorities and powers? Why is that necessary to tell to a struggling church, a church that's being persecuted? Well, the fact that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father and every authority that exists is subjected to him means that we as Christians, we literally have nothing to fear. There's really nothing to fear. Whenever we fear, right, the fear of man, the fear of the future, it, it's essentially... Uh, based on lies. It's, it's not reality for the Christian, regardless of how you feel. I know you feel that sometimes, and I struggle with fear, but the reality of your situation is that if you're in Christ, right, and as long as Jesus Christ is seated on the throne and all authority has been given to him, there, everyone is subjected to his rule. We, 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 we don't have to fear anymore. Um, and, I, and I, always, I, always, I always think in these terms because I'm, I'm a regular full-time worker and I think of, you know, management. I think of the people that I interact with. Um, and, and even the times that we live in now with, with, uh, with the election, with the fear about our presidents or whatever, the government, no person, no manager, no president has ultimate authority. And if we lived in light of that reality that Jesus Christ is on a throne, suffering would look, look a lot different for the Christian. Um, our anxieties would look a lot different for uh, Christians. Right? So none, no, no one in position has ultimate authority. Yet our Lord and Savior does have ultimate authority. And we belong to Him. Therefore, we should not fear anyone or any trial that we face. Um, I, I love reading Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that ought to encourage us as you go through suffering, as you go through the trials that you may go through, the seasons that you may go through. Um, Jesus Christ still rules, and as long as we're in him, um, all things work together for our good. Now, just to conclude, we've seen how the gospel itself is our hope. We saw that in verse 18. Even when we suffer various trials. Because in the gospel we recognize that suffering always comes before glory. And what awaits us is promises that we can't imagine. And again, our motivation is not, ooh, I can't wait to go to heaven to receive all these riches. If, if you, as a Christian, if you realize that all good things finds its amen, its source in Jesus Christ... <clears throat> then Jesus Christ is our treasure in heaven. That's who we long to be with. So again, suffering comes before the glory, but what awaits us is, is, is something that we can't grasp yet, but it's, it's the ultimate good. Um, and, and that was purchased for you on the cross of Christ. We also see how baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And gives confidence to believers, not in the waters of baptism, but in the power of the Spirit's work in saving us and carrying us through till the end. Jesus promises us 
that we'll be carried through the waters of, of judgment and we'll make it to the end if we take refuge in, in, in Christ, who is the, the type of, of what the ark was in, in Noah's time. And finally, we place our trust in the victory in Christ's ascension, which signifies his reign over all things. It's these truths that Peter shares to his suffering churches that help them to persevere, as well as us today who are suffering through many trials. And, and we ought to continue to be strengthened by, by these truths, these promises that Jesus Christ is Lord and all authority has been given to, to our Lord. Uh, so that concludes the, uh, the, the, the subject. Does anyone have any questions or any comments that they want to make in light of what we spoke about? George. He said, is anyone among you suffering? We must pray. Yeah. We have to guard ourselves, our flesh, to leave them like the world does. Sometimes when we're down, when mm -hmm. we're suffering, we want to keep busy, we want to ignore it, we right. want to um, do things that end up hurting us. He says, we must pray. The first place we go to is pray. Amen. Yeah. And then afterwards, he says, is anyone cheerful? Um, uh, we used to sing psalms. We have to be careful. We don't want to be rushing into Mm -hmm. singing psalms when we haven't taken care of the suffering person going before him because yeah. he brings it on for us to go before him yeah. to leave it at his feet to trust him to believe him and as you said mm -hmm. to see things as he sees right amen you know, so if anyone's suffering you must pray yeah. you shouldn't feel like a, a burden or an obligation right it's a joy to pray yeah yeah that's very good thank you brother <clears throat> yeah great Mm -hmm. That's right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to find our strength in Jesus, even when we're suffering through trials. <clears throat> May your gospel be sweet to us in moments of trouble. <clears throat> May we look back at our baptism as a symbol of the real work that you accomplished for us in Christ. And may we set our minds constantly on the fact that you reign over all things. And that regardless of trouble, we can be assured that you rule and that you will rule and that would continue. And that every knee will eventually bow and confess that you're Lord. And that's sweet news to us, Lord. We thank you for this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.